If you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 7. Last week, we, we stopped at striking sins. We've been talking about sin for the last several weeks now in Mark chapter 7. Jesus basically has been talking about sin, or he's mentioned sin, but he's, he's not, in the life of Jesus, he's not really like hammering it. But in chapter 7, he does. He stops and he starts listing all these sins to make everybody in church sweat, okay? Everybody. Like, everybody gets thrown under the bus as he lists these sins. And he says, all of these sins start in our heart. Now, I know that it's not necessarily a popular thing to talk about sin in the city or sin necessarily in our day and age in the church. And I know that there are churches that have got this uh, topic horribly wrong on both sides, on both the liberal and the conservative side. But we want to look at Jesus this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7. Um... I think I'm going to start in verse, start in verse 14, okay? Start in verse 14, and then this is the section that we've been reading it pretty much every week. Now, up to this, leading up to this in verse 14, the scribes and the Pharisees are asking Jesus' disciples why they eat with dirty hands. Why don't they wash? And we're not talking about, like, why don't they use antibac or why don't they wash their hands before they eat? But they really thought that when they would handle food, their hands would be dirty, and then they would make the food unclean and ritually unclean, and they would eat the food, and it would make their souls unclean. It went from the hand to the food to the mouth to the heart. That's what they thought. But Jesus was like, no. Actually, nothing that you eat makes you unclean because it goes from your mouth to your stomach to literally the toilet, and it's gone. It doesn't touch your soul. And this is what Jesus says. And so he goes, it actually starts in your heart, and so he explains and the disciples were tripping out, because this is like pretty revolutionary, so he explains it in verse 14. And he said to the, he called the people to him and said to them again, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile, defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about this parable, because it was so revolutionary. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Or, and you have a little footnote, it says latrine, it goes literally out into the waste. Thus he declared all foods clean, verse 20. And then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, it all starts in your heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Jesus, I pray for hearts in here. I know there are people in here that um, they are probably thinking, it's another church talking about what's wrong. But I pray that today, as we see that this sin that's in our hearts is pervasive, it's, it, it goes in the church and out of the church all over the world, that we are indeed great sinners, but you are indeed a great Savior. And we would look to you, Jesus, that we would be saved, Christian, non-Christian. We all need to be saved, all of us. If we need to be saved from self-righteousness, would you save us? If we need to be saved from gross, habitual sin, would you break that in our lives today? We say together that you are good. You are good, Lord. 
Jesus, I pray you'd be exalted and glorified. That you would use me and anoint me, Lord. Um, because I, after studying this for several weeks, I realize how sinful and messed up I am. And we look to you all. We all look to you, Lord, that you would save us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been in, the Mark's, in Mark's gospel since, uh, since January. And we've been looking into who Jesus is. Uh, we've been saying things like, the real Jesus. And Mark set out to write a book. And in this book, what he's, what he's doing, he's trying to present to us the unadulterated, unmessed with Jesus. Showing us who Jesus really is, showing us his nature, the nature of Christ, and then what Jesus really did, the mission of Christ. So that's what he's doing. And Mark has focused in on the actions of Jesus. So I, what I love about the book of Mark, it reads like a good action movie or something. It's all about the actions of Jesus, what Jesus does. It's sort of rare that Mark focuses on Jesus' teachings. But he does here. In chapter 7, it stops. And Jesus is dealing with and teaching on the topic of sin. And I understand that this is not necessarily a popular topic. It's not, it was not a popular topic then, and it is not a popular topic today. So the last several weeks, even last week, we stopped and we looked at some pretty striking sins. We said that there's sexual immorality, or the word there, the Greek word is porneia, and that there's sensuality, where you kind of give yourself up to whatever whim, whatever flesh whim that you want. And then there is adultery, but then there's also murder, and theft. And these things are pretty striking. We all can agree on most of these that they are sin. But then Jesus gets, and his list goes a little further, it gets into subtle sins to where no one's innocent at all. Subtle sins, the sins that are kind of socially acceptable. Sins where if I said then you're like, yeah, everyone does that. Isn't that okay? Things like that. And so we've stopped and we kind of, we've asked this question, what is sin and evil? What is the source of sin and evil? Now, you have to understand, first off, the context of Mark chapter 7. In Mark 7, Jesus is not, Jesus isn't guest speaking at a brothel when he names these sins, okay? He's not bringing up all these sins going, okay, everyone in here, I, everyone knows everyone's a sinner. I'm, he's not doing prison ministry. The audience in Mark chapter 7 actually begins with the most religious and socially elite people in Jewish society as the audience. It's like, these are the elite of the Jewish society. These people are socially and religiously above everyone else. And then Jesus says to them, in their face, in messianic fashion, in prophetic fashion, he gets them all together and he says, you are hypocrites. You're a hypocrite. And then he says this. He goes right for their heart. You honor God with your lips. Everybody knows that you all say praise the Lord and God, be, God is great and God is good and all this stuff and you pray your big long prayers. Your lips honor God, but your heart is far from God. In other words, you might look like you have it all together, but you're really, really, really screwed up and evil inside. This is Jesus going after the Pharisees. And the Pharisees thought sin and moral evil came from out there. The world was dirty. The religious goal was to keep the world out and to keep our souls clean. That was the religious goal. But Jesus said, no, no, that's not the case. Evil is not out there necessarily. Evil starts in here. That was fairly revolutionary. 
That's why the disciples pulled him aside afterwards, like, wait, explain to me again what you're saying. Evil starts in here. And he goes, are, are, you, are you without understanding? Evil starts in your heart. You don't eat food and it makes your soul dirty. Because it goes from food, full, uh, food goes from mouth to stomach to the, to, it's gone. It doesn't touch your soul. Your soul is the problem. Your soul actually touches everything else and messes everything up. Your soul touches church and messes church up. Your soul touches sex and messes sex up. Your soul touches relationships and messes those up as well. It's your soul that's the problem. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now, that's pretty depressing. I know you guys are all like, when you hear that, you're like, wow, this is a fun church. This is uh, really good, making me feel really good about myself. It is actually fairly depressing when you think about it. Like, wow, like, I'm, I'm messed up. It's me. I'm the problem. I mean, think about it. And this is a good question uh, to ask about humanity in general. You're, you, it's a good question to ask about yourself and actually about humanity. It's an important question indeed. And the question is this. Why is it that when we know what is right to do, when we know the right decision to make, we don't do it? I'm not talking about every time, but most of the time. When we know what's the right thing to do in a certain situation, we don't do it. When I know what would be the right decision to make in this situation, or I know in my mind what I should do when faced with, a, I don't know, let's say a temptation. I don't know if, you've, if you could stand here this week and go, I've been perfect all week long. I've done everything I've set out to do. I haven't offended anybody. I haven't sinned in my heart or my mind. I'm perfect. But the fact is, we know what, what is right to do, but we don't do it. And this is, this is across the board. This is people that, like, read four hours a day of their Bible and, like, pray for six hours a day. And they get out of their house for 15 minutes and sin. This happens to everybody. You can try to avoid it. It's a part of you. I think we said several weeks ago that you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. It's in your heart. Or think of it this way. Here's another way to think about it. If you compiled all the behaviors that world religions ask and demand upon and urge upon humanity, if you compiled all of them, all the world religions, there is basically universal agreement on how humans should act. All of them, pretty much all of them say, you're, supposed, you're not supposed to lie, you're not supposed to murder, don't rob, don't be unjust. We are to live by the golden rule. We're to be generous with our possessions. We're to show mercy. I mean, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents um, didn't raise me in the church at all. I went like twice growing up. But my, my dad still taught me, my mom still taught me those very things. Son, don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't steal. Show mercy. Don't be sexist. Don't be racist. Don't be like all these things that pretty much every single religion can agree upon. Actually, C.S. Lewis, this is exactly what C.S. Lewis did at the end of his book, The Abolition of Man. He compiles a series of sayings from the different world religions and what they ask and urge humanity to do. And he has a list. And his point is they all basically, when it comes down to all the behaviors that all religions ask of humanity are in total agreement about the way that man should live. Everyone understands that we should live justly and generously and not murder and not lie. There's universal consensus. Everyone knows we should live this way. 
And we all can pretty much agree that the main reason for all the misery in the world and all the problems in society is because people don't live this way. Now, if everyone agrees that we should live this way, and if everyone agrees that the problems in our city are because we don't live this way, what the heck is wrong with us? We all can get together and like, hey, let's all agree. Let's all not lie, right? That's bad. We're like, yeah, let's all do that. Then we try to do it, and we don't. Let's all not cheat or steal or murder, yet our world is filled with it. What is there about our human heart where we can know exactly what to do and the consequences of not doing it, but still do it anyway? No matter who's in office, no matter if it's a liberal government or a conservative government, no matter what, the tr- what trend is blowing through our nation or what, or what trend is blowing through our neighborhoods, no matter it, what church we go to or the philosophy we hold to or how educated we are. I don't know if you went to college and you thought in college, when I get to college, I'm going to be smarter and make better decisions when I get to college because I'm going to be educated. And when I'm educated, I'm going to make awesome decisions. And you go to college and you realize you're, you make bad decisions still. Really, probably worse ones now. Like, education doesn't do it. We need something more. Technology. Even though that we have great technology available to us, we still choose the wrong. We still sin anyway. And I'm not just talking about breaking the Ten Commandments. Like, well, I don't live by the Ten Commandments. I'm not even talking about that. Just break from that for a moment. You disobey your own conscience. Whatever law you decided to live by, everyone has failed even their own standard. No matter if, if whatever your moral or ethical code is, somewhere along the road, if you decided maybe to live by the law of Moses or Jesus' teachings or the convictions of San Francisco, I guarantee you not all of you are recycling, right? I know that for a fact. Or if you decided along the way to live on Buddhism's Eightfold Path or Islam's Five Pillars of Conduct or your New Year's resolution, whatever it is, We have not succeeded in observing it. We all, all of us, myself included, all of us stand self-condemned. Why? C.S. Lewis had it right when he responded to a letter from someone asking about his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you have not read this book, it's a wonderful book. In this book, if you're not familiar with it, it's a series of letters written by the senior demon. His name is Screwtape. And he writes to his nephew, whose name is Wormwood, and he's basically showing Wormwood how to bring temptation and then damnation to a man's soul who's simply called the patient. And there was an impressed reader who read this book and was like, how does C.S. Lewis know the, the heart of, of man, the, the, the mind of Satan so well, how, how Satan tempts man, and so how man is so easily led astray? How did he know all this? And so he, he writes him to ask him, and he was baffled that C.S. Lewis had that much insight into how people are tempted into sin. And he said this. He thought that this must must represent C.S. Lewis's ripe fruit of many years of studying moral theology and being a professor of medieval literature. He's like, wow, you must study moral theology, and you must be really good at medieval literature. That's how you know the human heart so well. And C.S. Lewis responded, There's an equally reliable, though less credible, way of learning how temptation works. He said, my own heart. C.S. Lewis said, I don't need anyone else to show me the wickedness of the ungodly. I can find it in my own heart. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 7. 
evil is found here. It's found in our own hearts. Evil and sin come from within. We know what to do. We don't do it. And the real problem lies within. Sin happens from the inside, and it works its way out to the point where it contaminates and destroys everything. And because sin lies within, this is what we're going to talk about today, and because sin lies within, it is by nature subtle. Our sin is subtle. Your sin is subtle. We're subtly little sinners. And what I mean by subtle is that sin can sit there in our hearts, and we can be unaware of its power, unaware of its danger, and unaware of its sinful sinfulness. Sin can lie in our heart, and we can be so ignorant about how sinful this sin is. Look at Jesus. I know that you're probably tired of looking at this list because it is getting hot in here. But let's look at Jesus' list of sin once again. Mark 7 says, And Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Okay? So it all happens here. For from within, out of the heart of man come, and this is what we talked about last week, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. All those striking sins actually start here. Then he moves on to more subtle ones. There's a couple of subtle ones listed here. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I mean, some of those things are fairly subtle. They can lie within, and you could think no big deal about it. Like, yeah, I have those sins within, but no big deal. Like, how many of you, don't raise your hand. Maybe you should not either, because I'll just know. How many of you covet? No one. I didn't think so. No one covets. I mean, how many times do you seriously covet in a day? I can't, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I covet like a thousand times a day. I know I'm sinful. After studying this for several weeks, I realize I'm way more sinful than I ever let on. I'm really sinful. I covet, especially studying, I realize how many times I covet in a day. I covet houses. Like, I want to live in a different district every other week in this city. Like, I want to live in that district. I want that house. No, I want that house. I covet, I covet cars and motorcycles and scooters and shoes and jackets and dogs. I covet dog. Like a dog, I'm like, I want that dog. Well, I would kill for that dog. I mean, maybe not kill, but I would just, I want that dog. I do that. And you name it, and my heart is a coveting factory. I can covet everything. But the thing is, it's socially acceptable to covet. If I walked up to you like, oh my gosh, I covet your jacket, you would go, thanks. <laughs> I'm like, I got it on sale. I li- you like it? I'm like, yeah. I mean, I would kill you for it, probably. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. And you would be like, oh, man, you're so nice. And that's how, that's kind of how we kind of see sins like that. And we're like, that's no big deal. Paul the Apostle said, I obeyed every single law to a T. And then I realized, I cannot covet. And I realized I was guilty of the whole law. I was guilty of breaking every part of the law because I coveted in my heart. And coveting is like no big deal to us. We think it's a compliment. We want to buy clothes with going, well, people covet that shirt. Yes, they will. I want to. And that's how we think. It's so acceptable. Or think about deceit. Think about deceit. How many small lies do you tell in a week? If you said zero, you're a liar. How many small, little, subtle lies? Like someone asks you, did you get that project done at work? Or did you send that email and you say, yes, but you really mean no. I, I forgot about it until right now, and I'm going to say yes because I'm going to go do it right now. 
And we're like, it's no big deal. It's like a reminder. Why'd you say yes then? Because I don't want to get all angry at me. Why? Because I care so much about what they think of me. That's why. Like, we tell these little lies all the time, and we think, hey, I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not sleeping around. I could tell little white lies. He's like, well, that's where it all starts. All these sins subtly lay in your heart, and they lay there until they destroy your whole life. In Genesis chapter 4, the opening narrative of the Bible, the sin of Cain is recorded when he murdered his brother Abel. They both made an offering to God in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was a farmer, so he brought the first fruits of the ground to God as an offering. And Abel was a rancher, so he brought firstborn of his flock to God. And the text says that God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's offering. And this made Cain angry and even depressed. They both offered to God. God did not accept Cain's offering. And Cain was super bummed. It says in chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, the king was very angry, and his face fell. This, is a, this means that he was depressed. And the Lord said to Cain, you see God now coming in and consoling Cain. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Why are you depressed, Cain? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin. Okay, this is the first mention of sin in the Bible. Sin is crouching at the door, and it's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and Abel killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, God didn't know, God knew where he was. He was asking about Cain's heart here, and look at, look what Cain's heart says. Look what he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to keep tabs on that guy? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Your, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, this is the first mention of sin used in the Bible. And there is a rule in Bible interpretation that says that the first word, when it's first mentioned, when a word is first mentioned, you should study it and pay attention to it. You should understand how that word is used because it gives you a good understanding about how that word will be, that word will be used and continue to be used in the rest of the Bible. And look at how God depicts sin here, Cain's sin. It says that his, this sin is in his heart because he hasn't done anything yet. The sin is in your heart. He's not done anything outwardly yet. And it, it, this sin has this deadly life of its own. This sin in your heart has this deadly life of its own. He says, sin in your heart, Cain, is like a predatory animal who lies in the shadows, lies hidden in your heart, whose desire is to completely overtake you and destroy you from the inside out. Cain, beware. There's sin in your heart. And that sin wants to overtake you. I mean, you've seen the Discovery Channel and Animal Planet. You've seen lions as they wait in the, the thicket, as they wait in the bush, ready to pounce on their prey. And this is what God says. This is the first mention of sin, and he, that's how he describes sin. Sins like this crouching tiger or this coiled-up snake ready to snap on you. It's so important to understand how God first depicts sin in the Bible because 
the nature of sin is subtle. It's like this anger. Cain knew that he had sin in his heart, but he didn't know its power. And God had to point out the power. He came to him and said, look, Cain, look. Look at that crouching tiger. Look at that ferocious beast of anger lying in your heart, hidden in the grass, hiding in the shadows. It wants to pounce on you and kill you, Cain, but you must master over it. Can you see the power of sin? Yes, sin is subtle, but look at its power. Sin becomes an abiding presence. Sin creates a reality. You don't just sin and that's it. Sin because becomes a force, and sin becomes a power. And the danger of the subtlety of sin is that sin deceives us into thinking that it's not that bad. I mean, Cain was like, dude, I'm just angry. Okay, I'm just angry at you, God. I'm angry at everybody. It's no big deal. Just leave me alone. Or you might have anger. You're like, hey, whatever. I'll get over it. I'm just angry. Or you might, let's say you don't forgive somebody. I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm just going to move on. Because of the subtlety of sins, we tend to tolerate them in our lives. We tend to tolerate sin. Think of sins we tolerate, like impatience. I'm very impatient. It's sin. Resentment, frustration, self-pity, anxiety. This is a pretty safe place, so I'll confess to you, thinking that you won't tell anybody in the world, so don't tell anybody. But anxiety. Anxiety lies in my own heart, and its desire is to completely destroy me. When anxiety came up several years ago, I was like, oh, just nervousness. My nerves, I'll get over it. But then it was unchecked. I didn't confess my anxiety. I didn't study what God says about anxiety. I let it go. And because of that, whenever anxiety rears its nasty head in my heart, its desire is to completely destroy me to where I begin to discount the goodness and the power and the presence of God in my life. When I, when I would be anxious, I would say, oh, I'm anxious, no big deal. It starts with anxiety, then it progresses to full-blown distrust and rebellion. I say this because I know there's people in here that deal with anxiety. And you're like, well, anxiety, yeah, I get anxious, but whatever. Like, I, I have things I take for that, and that's, you know, that's real, and I understand that. That's really real. There is a certain sort of anxiety that comes from just us not trusting in God. I know that, and I tell you that firsthand. I know there's fear that comes in our hearts for not trusting in God. And these are sins. And they're subtle. They lie there. They're like, oh, I'm just fear, no big deal. Or I'm just anxiety, no big deal. And then they grow to where they consume your faith, your trust, your hope, your joy. They destroy you completely. Or you're paralyzed in fear. You're paralyzed in anxiety. You don't want to move forward about with anything. This is the nature of sin. And we see the way that God depicted Cain's sin as a coiled predator, ready to spring. But the other implication is that sin hides. It hides in the shadows, and it's dangerous. If you see a coiled-up snake or a crouching tiger, you have a chance. But if you don't see it, you're dead. If it's hiding there and you're like, oh, I, I don't see it, and you walk by it and it, it bites you, you're done. But if you see it, you have, you have at least a couple steps. If you see a snake, you know, I'm, I'm going to avoid it. Or I can start a head start and running or something, but if you don't see it, you're dead. Think of it like this. The sins that lie hidden in your heart 
subtly lying there unchecked, having never given them a second thought, these are the sins that have the greatest possibility to ruin you. Those things that you're in denial about, that you rationalize, that you minimize, having these have the greatest potential to destroy you. Um, several years ago, I was listening to a teaching by Tim Keller, and he was teaching on the subtlety of sin. And he used this illustration, I think it's great. He said this, as long as you look at workaholism as conscientiousness and being responsible, as long as you look at your grudge as moral outrage, as long as you look at materialism as ambition, as long as you look at arrogance as healthy self-assertion, as long as you look at your obsession with good looks as good grooming, you're vulnerable and you're living in denial. And the subtlety of sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to destroy you. Because first you do sin and then sin does you. That's its nature. That's how sin works. You're anxious. Okay, you did sin. You sinned. Philippians 4, 6 said, don't be anxious. So you're anxious. You just did sin. But then sin does you because it poisons your relationship with God. You become nervous, doubting in the plans of God, not wanting to submit to the submit joyfully and accept God's agenda for you. I know this firsthand. Or, or you say, I'm not going to forgive this person. You don't know what they've done to me. Okay, you've done sin. But then sin does you because it poisons your other relationships in ways you might not ever see. It will harden you and make you more defensive and untrusting. So this is why Jesus says, sin begins in your heart. What comes out of a person and what defiles him? For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. All these subtle sins start in our hearts, and then they go out and they defile relationships. Relationships with others, with friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouses, neighbors, coworkers, brothers and sisters in Christ, our own family. But the main point here, the main point here is that our relationship with God is destroyed. That's the whole point of Mark chapter 7. Our sinful hearts defile our relationship with God. And this is why Jesus told the religious leaders that they honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from God. Their heart is the ultimate basis for our relationship with God, and that's destroyed due to sin, issues of the heart. And because of that, our greatest human need what we need the most as humanity is to be forgiven of our sins. And our relationship with God needs to be restored. And this is what happened, if you remember the, remember in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus brings in, or Jesus is teaching in Peter's home, and it's so packed and nobody could get in there, but this paralyzed man needs to get to Jesus, and his friends tear a, a hole in the roof and lower him down through the roof. And they lower his friend down the roof. And I mean, the roofs were made of mud and thatch and stuff. And so parts of the roof were falling on people's head. Everybody looks up. The light shines forth. And then these heads pop down like, there he is right there. And they start lowering down their friend. And here he comes down in this gurney. And just, he's an invalid. He can't walk at all. He's paralyzed. So he just hits the ground. And he's just laying there. He's just like, and Jesus does this in verse 5. He's like, forgiven. And that's so awkward. Here's a man laying on the ground who can't move, who's paralyzed. He's like, forgiven son, your sins, they're forgiven. Like, what do you mean my sin? Like, what sin? Like the sin of tearing a hole in your roof? 
Like, why did you just forgive me? I need real help, Jesus. I can't walk. I want to walk. And this, this might seem a little insensitive. I mean, hello, paralyzed man, on the ground, through the roof. You're forgiven. That's all you got. A bit insensitive, maybe a bit uncaring. Don't you know that he's suffering? He's really suffering. This man has gone through real suffering, the things that he's never been able to do because of his disease, how he has been his whole life a victim of things he cannot control. Do something about that, Jesus. But what Jesus is showing is the main problem with humanity has never really been our suffering. It's our sin. That's our greatest need. Like, well, no, the greatest need, this man needs to be healed. He's like, this man needs to be forgiven. And this man needs to know that I love him. He called him son. Son. And Matthew's gospel says, do not fear. I mean, Jesus can read hearts here. That's the whole subtext here. Because the, the, the Pharisees are like, who's this man to forgive sins? And Jesus is like, I heard that. Like, I'm God. I just heard your heart. You know, you think I would have it all figured out. Like this whole subtext that Jesus reads hearts. In Matthew's gospel, it says, he knew that his heart was afraid. And he goes, son, do not fear. Your sins are forgiven. This great, the greatest thing this man had was his sins needed to be forgiven. We need to be delivered. This is our greatest need. We need to be delivered from the wrath of God and the presence and the power of sin that lies within. The Bible teaches that this is true freedom. True freedom is found as our hearts are freed by Jesus. And what Christ has done, done bringing in the kingdom of God, coming, humbling himself, becoming a man, dying our death on the cross. We deserve that death. He died it as a substitutionary atonement, meaning he took our penalty, our place on the cross, died for us, that we can have life, that we can be forgiven of our sins. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners. Now, he didn't say he's coming in the world to save people that sinned once, and then when they came to Christ, they didn't need any more forgiveness. He came in the world to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. I believe in Christ and I trust in Christ. I'm, I'm made righteous by Christ, but I still inhabit this sinful flesh. And so Christ is a great Savior to me still. He's come in the world to save me still today. He's come in this world to save me. I've asked Christ today to save me again, to save me from my the evil that lies within my heart. John Newton, the man who wrote that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Before he wrote that hymn, and before he was a minister, he was a, um, he was a captain. He was a slave trader. And he was even a, a captain of a ship that was transporting captured Africans to America. And John Newton got saved. He publicly repented and became a minister. However, he never forgot the horrible nature of his sin as a slave trader. At the end of his life, as his memory was going, he said this to a good friend, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. If you've been walking with Christ, you still need a great Savior. I know some of you. You still need a great Savior. And like C.S. Lewis, I know my own heart. 
I need a great Savior. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's this really obscure verse. You maybe have read it and probably maybe never understood it. It says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Like, what is that about? When we read Genesis chapter 4, Jesus, or God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That sins that we commit cry out to God. And it cries out unjust. There needs to be justice, vengeance. There needs to be redemption here. It cries out. Our sins cry out to God. And that's what God was telling Cain. Your brother's blood is crying out to me for justice. But the blood of Jesus, his death on the cross, in our place, and for our sin, cries out as well. But it speaks a better word than that. It doesn't cry out justice and vengeance upon us. It cries out forgiveness and mercy to all who come to Jesus by faith. It cries out that he's paid our price. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And as we trust in him and believe in him and put our hopes in him and repent and turn to Christ as our Savior, as we do that, you and I will experience that Christ is indeed a great Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a good and awesome Savior. I know that there's some people that might have a really difficult time with that. For whatever reason, I pray that the presence of Christ here in this building would melt the hardest of hearts, even of those that have maybe been to church their whole life. Would you even melt my heart, God, parts of me that sin lies subtly in and I don't even recognize it? Thank you that you are indeed a great Savior. You're patient and you're kind, you're long-suffering, that you've paid the price and the penalty for our sin. We turn to you in repentance. We turn to you in response. We worship you and we say thank you. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.